Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today my guest is Bree Arthur. You've heard Bree before, and you can always go back into the um, archives and listen again in case you missed some of the stuff on her fantastic peppers and things like that. And Bree, you have you are the leading light of a new, uh, a whole new, well, motion. I don't know, foodscaping. It is so delightful that foodscaping is taking ground and making a meaningful impact, finally. Well, and you're you're the person that does it. Um, I, I don't know. There have been other people that have started doing some foodscapes, but I don't know that anybody has taken it to the level that you have in so many places. And... And it's for homeowners. It's not just for people with a lot of land. It's homeowners in a subdivision. And that's what I think is really coolest about it, because you get around the homeowners associations. Well, you know, when I bought my first house in 2006, so 10 years ago, I didn't have the luxury of having a budget to move to the country. And I lived in a subdivision with a very strict HOA, and... You know, I was a full-time plant propagator, and this was the subprime mortgage time. So all of my income was literally going to pay my mortgage payment. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I have a relatively intuitive understanding of how important it is to eat, you know, healthy, particularly produce. You know, I have a very heavy produce diet, always have. And I really believe in if you want to be sustainable, you absolutely have to localize all of the things you're buying, but particularly the things that you're eating, since you're consuming food more than you're consuming anything else. And I didn't have the money to get to go to Whole Foods and and have a, you know, a, a yuppie shopping experience. So I had to grow at least, you know, supplemental produce so that I could fill my dietary needs. And I also didn't have the money or tools or experience to buy lumber to build raised beds. I, like most people, was under the impression that you keep your vegetables segregated from your ornamentals and you, for some reason, grow them in these raised boxes, um, which in some cases do facilitate an important need where you have you know, soil contamination or certainly people with disabilities that are in wheelchairs having them accessed higher. But in general, your vegetables don't have to be segregated at all. And I just started tucking vegetables in as a means of growing something that I needed and sort of trying to hide it from my HOA. And when they went around and and did kind of the yard of the month, yard of the year program, they were so enchanted by the fact that there were cucumbers that were covering, you know, front porch area. They they really were celebrating it. They thought it was terrific. They they kept saying, I never thought food could look pretty. And that's what really started me saying, okay, foodscaping is something that has meaning. And it's empowering to the people that live in small spaces but have a desire to, you know, impact the world positively by supplementing some of what they eat by growing it in a zero-kilometer kind of situation. So for 10 years, I've been practicing this and promoting it and working with, with people that have a have a desire to, you know, grow some of what they consume and 
in the last two years, I've really been able to pick up speed, and now I'm working with landscape contractors who are implementing this in commercial spaces and whole neighborhoods, uh, elementary schools, retirement communities. So I'm just really proud and excited to see that local food is now really starting to be looked at as something that can be produced in the suburban landscape and a common everyday landscape that we're kind of greenwashed by. Now, you, your garden doesn't have, you mentioned it doesn't have the raised beds and the vegetables aren't segregated, but you also have, um, you have everything with sweeping curves and you've got trees in there just like a normal landscape would be. And I'm just fascinated. We'll, I'll have some pictures up on their Facebook page and so that people can look at it because it's, it's just beautiful it is absolutely gorgeous and you've taken it not only taken it with growing some of your own vegetables but you're also growing um you're growing grains now now how did that get started well that is all rosalind creasy so of course rosalind if you've not read her books run out to barnes and nobles and get every book she's written i'm so fortunate that Another wonderful mentor and my producer with Growing a Greener World, Joe Lample, introduced me to Rosalind, who started the edible plant movement back in really like the mid-70s mid and continues to work. Now I think she's actually working on corporate campuses with Google and Apple and Amazon and all kinds of things. But I was saying that I would planted this bed that separates my front yard. It divides my front yard in two because I have a, a deep but narrow lot. And I planted pink muley, which, of course, is a native to North Carolina, and all of it died because on my property we have a very high water table, particularly in the winter when the plants aren't absorbing water, and they drowned. And I was so depressed, and I, I just didn't know what to do. I, I wanted to have that prairie look. I like a meadow. I'm from the Midwest originally. I draw a lot of aesthetic from natural systems. And she said, well, don't, don't fill it up with high-maintenance ornamental grasses, meaning high maintenance. Not that they need a lot of water, but they do need to be divided and cut back. And I don't really enjoy that kind of perennial maintenance that a lot of plants require. She said, just grow grains. You know, you can spend $5 on seed, and you'll get that look all winter. It'll give you the movement. It turns amber. You'll feel very patriotic. In fact, now we, we at our 4th of July party, we all thresh wheat. We have a neighborhood party, and everybody chips in to threshing wheat, and then now we have a grinder, so that's our plan for the holiday this year. How but, cool. You know, the grains, to me, are the thing that's missing from the local foods movement. You know, everybody talks about tomatoes and peppers and eggplants and cucumbers and, you know, the common stuff that, that you grow, that you can buy starts from your garden center or box store. But at the heart of it, where are where is your bread coming from? Where is your rice coming from? You know, everybody's on the quinoa bandwagon, but quinoa moves about 3,000 miles to get to the U.S. That's not sustainable, especially as our population gets larger globally. So how do we hyper-localize these real sources of our nutrition that are at the heart that we kind of ignore, whether you're eating them directly or the animals that you eat, somehow you are consuming carbohydrates. And so that's what, for me, the crazy grain lady movement really is to just raise awareness of 
let's think about every every little aspect of what we consume and figure out a dynamic that makes that more localized. And I've now gotten rice into about 150 commercial landscapes, and I, I swear I think I can die happy. <laughs> I think <that laughs> rice is the plant that's going to really be the catalyst for getting people to understand particularly in the southeast. I don't know exactly how rice performs in other climates, but rice is the plant that empowered the south economically in the colonial ages. And I'm not sure why it went out of fashion, but it's a wonderful plant for the everyday landscape. It does not need to be flooded. Uh, You do want to keep it well watered while it's setting the seeds so that the seeds are plump and then, you, you know, they're more edible. Uh, but it holds its structural integrity. I think it's a great replacement for, you know, an annual ornamental grass. You plant it as a clump, and it, it grows about three foot tall and actually sets edible seeds in our climate for three to four months. So you have a wow. continuous harvest with it. And, of course, there's, you know, full varieties and green and, and purple leaf varieties. So there's all sorts of ornamentation that goes right along with the edible component. Um, now, how much rice would you different. get off? How much rice would you get off of a planting that's maybe, oh, I don't know, three feet wide and ten feet long? Well, I would say you'd probably get maybe five or six normal servings. So that might be the equivalent of like a bag that you would buy at a grocery store. Um, that's you know, a lot. The, the trick, it's a lot. It's a lot more than you anticipate. Yeah. I think the the thing with foodscaping that I really like to drive home with people is that it's not about living off the grid. It's not that you're never going to go to a grocery store, but it is this opportunity to supplement what you buy. And you can really, people love, they come to me and they're like, ah, I served a whole dinner that was from my yard. And they're so proud that they played a role in that. And, you know, just the other day when Growing a Greener World was here, I served a rice dish that was front yard rice and, you know, all vegetables that were, you know, grown here and, you know, just harvested. And there's something about it tasting even better when you know that you did it all. You grew it from seed, you grew the plant out, you harvested it. And it's, it's extremely satisfying. And, you know, one, another great attribute of the foodscape is that it recognizes that your life can change. You know, you can have a baby. Your, your parents can get sick. You can get sick. Your job can change. And unlike traditional vegetable gardening, where you suddenly have this blank space, in a foodscape, if you stop growing food, you still have this ornamental base that is in place, that looks good, that your neighbors aren't going to be offended if they don't see it brimming full of produce because it isn't a blank slate. And I, I think that's a really important consideration because vegetable gardening is something that comes and goes as your lifestyle changes. And I it certainly space, is. Yeah, I, it's, it's important not to have, you know, this massive raised bed space that, you know, you might leave empty for five years and your neighbors start to complain. And I think it's really important that people not pretend they're farmers. When you live in the suburbs, you're not using mechanization. You're fundamentally not a farmer. You don't have to plant everything in straight rows. You're not using a machine to seed or harvest. So, you know, tuck things in. Use some of your 
flowering deciduous shrubs as supports for your heirloom tomatoes instead of having an ugly row of heirlooms someplace that every time you walk past you cringe. You know, limelight hydrangeas to me are the very best tomato steaks. <laughs> I will have to try that. I have not it's a I hadn't really considered great strategy. It. Yeah. Wow. You know, quince quince are a little bit prickly, but they hold those tomatoes up really well. Lilacs, uh, you know, there there are all sorts of viburnum. They all are full sun, deciduous shrubs that have good branching structure that you really don't even have to work to get the tomato to, to climb up through. That's really interesting. I had not considered that. I, you know, I, we have to talk about more about this because I'm absolutely intrigued. Um, so when we come back from this break, uh, let's talk about what do you do about the shade from all these shrubs. That's, that's my number one thing. I can see it being used as a support, but what about the shade? We have to take a little break right now, but we'll be right back after this. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Bree Arthur, who is, I guess you call yourself a garden communicator, don't you? But you're also an experimenter. And one of the things that you mentioned was growing your tomatoes up through various shrubs, like the lilac and, and hydrangea and things. And, but what do you do about the shade, Bree? Well, so that's a great question. And, of course, you know, when you're getting your tomatoes planted, the, the foliage on these plants is really kind of just coming out. They're just starting to grow. And you want to get the tomato planted maybe uh, 15, 18 inches away from the trunk of the shrub or the, or a tree. I also use prunus mumes and dogwoods and redbuds as tomato supports. And you want to plant it on the side that's going to maximize the sun exposure. So depending on, you know, the orientation that your garden faces, in my case, 
I have a perfect east-west quadrant that the sun rises in my front yard and sets in the middle of my backyard. And I always plant my tomatoes to the south of those shrubs. So, uh, you know, I get them planted in usually mid to late April. And generally by the 4th of July or shortly after, they're starting to develop fruit. And it's a real delight to see these fruit hanging along with the limelight hydrangea flowers, which are just so beautiful. And it's just the perfect living, um, you know, a, a living, um, not screen, but uh, cage. I don't ever put cages, tomato cages, out in my front garden. I feel like um, that's a way to alert people to start complaining that you're growing food. Yep. And in my neighborhood now, I really don't have a big concern about that, but I do this in neighborhoods that have much stricter covenants, and this is just the, the perfect solution for somebody that has a tomato addiction and maybe only has sun in their front yard. So we add a handful of tomatoes to their foundation landscape, and frankly, no one's the wiser. So it's, a, it's actually a great way to hide your tomatoes. Tomatoes aren't always the most beautiful plant, especially in the southeast. And um, you can really compensate by using your ornamental palette. That is pretty cool because you're right. Tomatoes, particularly in the southeast where we get we have a lot of humidity and we get a lot of rain, um, they get foliage diseases. They start to look really, really ugly after a while. And then if you would add insult to injury by putting them on a stake or, um, you know, in a cage, that would be even uglier. Now, I know that somebody, some people have used fairly brightly colored tutors in their garden. I guess that's an option for people uh, um, who don't have the shrubs developed yet. Because a lot of people uh, and that listen to this show, you know, they come in, they they have a new house, and they want to grow some food, and but they don't have any real bones in their garden yet. And now, when you bought your house, was it was it new too, or had there been an established garden? Well, it, that's a great question. My husband bought this house, you know, many many years prior to my meeting him, and it was a builder basic that was already ten years old. So it had a compact holly hedge mm-hmm. uh, that was overgrown. And it had actually inherited all the common landscape problems of the mid-1990s. So, you know, property borders of of Leyland Cypress, which are very quickly dying, Um, an enormous Bradford pear adjacent to our house that it's just waiting to fall and crack our roof. Um, You know, uh, foster hollies right off the back porch, so every time you went outside barefoot, you would get leaves stuck to you. Uh, you know, all of these plants that really are, first of all, outdated and way too big for the space that they're planted in. Mm-hmm. And so when I came in, uh, I broke ground on January 3rd, 2011, <laughs> my mom's birthday, so it sticks out. Um, and I basically, other than the pear and, and the Leylands, which obviously are a much bigger undertaking just because of their biomass, Ripped out pretty much everything. I left one hedge of compacta holly, which I still have. It's actually a great backdrop for the edibles. You know, nothing looks better than you know, Swiss chard against an evergreen backdrop in the middle of the Oh, winter. yeah. 
And so, you know, I think that there's a real role that a compacta holly can play. And some of these more boring common landscape plants, at least they're green, at least you know they're going to live. And you can jazz them up and you can give them a new purpose when you add, you know, some edible plants and then some other ornamental flowering deciduous things around. But I pretty much started with what I'd call a blank slate. I had a landscape company come in. I had drawn it all out. I think that's a really important thing that when you live in the suburbs, when you make changes to your landscapes, you usually do have to get an approval from your board. So it's important that you have a scaled drawing and that you have a plan because even the best of people can make a landscape look ugly fast when you don't have it on paper. Yes. And, you know, everything was drawn to scale. I had not every single vegetable represented, but certainly all of the main ornamental components were were labeled on my plan so that when we came in and started tearing out sod and improving the soil, I had a plan of action that I could move towards. And, you know, like everyone else, we're on a budget, so we did one section at a time. Sure. And, you know, I'm big in efficiency. I think that to do it yourself is often too overwhelming. You don't have the equipment. So if you can figure out what you want to accomplish and then maximize what a professional can offer, and then you start from that next stage where the soil is in, your base plants are in, now you can start growing like a garden. But if a homeowner is to take on a massive sod removal project and then also move 50 yards of compost, the one thing it's going to take forever because you likely don't have a front-end loader, you likely mm-hmm. don't have an operating sod cutter, um, you don't really have an ability to get rid of this waste once you've, once you've pulled it out. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that the landscape industry is here to help make your landscape better. And one of my things is I really want to empower the landscape industry to play a role in sustainable local food production. So anytime I can engage a landscaper that, you know, has a forward vision and wants to take their their direction in a positive way, I always try to, you know, hire them to do work that I think normal homeowners shouldn't take on. Because you'll quickly burn out. You yes. will quickly grow to resent your garden, and that's not what you want. <laughs> yeah, so and approaching I, I really it in like a professional your- manner. I like your idea of engaging, of getting somebody in to do the tough jobs for you. And don't be bullied by some people that only want to work from their design or that offer you free plans um, if you go with them for the landscape. I have to say, you know, and I'm a landscape designer. I had to recently retire, but... um, A lot of landscape designers know that the homeowner wants a very full look right away, so they will cram the plants way too close together for the health of the plant. And one of my jobs as a landscape designer was to come in five or ten years after somebody had had it planted and go in and help them figure out which shrubs that they needed to take out and where do they need to, you know, where do they need to go from there because, you know, in 10 years, and sometimes you can't even see the house. Or, you know, it's great that you mentioned that. I had a conversation yesterday with a wonderful plantsman and designer 
actually the research horticulturalist at Plant Lights Nursery. And his approach is to space those ornamentals, those shrubs and trees appropriately, and then give the homeowner the instant gratification with annuals, big sweeps of sunflowers and, you know, grow, grow out zucchinis and let, let the edibles fill in that gap. And then you really start noticing five years in that those ornamentals are starting to really grow big and they are spaced appropriately so you never have to edit in the long run. And that takes a lot of foresight in the beginning but one way or another, if you want an instant landscape, you're either going to overplant it with woody ornamentals, which is going to cost you more, or you can fill those gaps with, with, with you know, annuals, whether they're ornamental annuals or edible annuals or a combination, and you can still achieve that look that it seems like a mature landscape. That's a great way to use the landscape for the first 10 years while you're in full sun. So eventually... Most of these suburban plantings have trees that are eventually going to cast enough shade that they won't really be able to grow a full palette of, of edibles. But in that first decade, there's a lot of sun. In most cases, all the trees have been torn down, and the trees that have been put in are maybe a two-inch caliper. And, and yeah. I just think that that's such a great way to be responsible in your initial design and then still fulfill that need that it doesn't look like it's so empty. I always used to suggest to my clients, and very often would just give them a packet of some really fast from seed uh, flowers like zinnias. You know, you have your soil prepared, you throw in the seed, you keep it watered, and in six weeks you have beautiful, beautiful flowers and cleomies and things like that. But I like your idea of putting food in there, um, especially something, you know, you mentioned the zucchini. It's, it is so architecturally beautiful when it's growing until oh, it gets it mildew is. or something like and that. It but it takes <laughs> up so much space. You know, yes, they do. Like, well, I grow my zucchini in a raised bed, and it's like, well, so you have one plant per box, you know? Yeah, it, that's about what it, that's so about what it is, and it always tickles me to see some books that will show you with a couple of zucchinis in a in a four by four square, and I just you know, give it, give the poor oh, plant some such, space. It's such bad advice, you know. I I think that. You know, again, it's not that I don't think that boxes have a purpose, but I, I don't. In, in a way, I think that, that that movement has really made people grow edibles very poorly because inevitably you're going to overplant it because you're cramming everything in one space. And what I don't think people are talking enough about is the lack of biodiversity represented in our edibles that our ornamental palette offers. You know, your everyday landscape has at least four or five families represented in its ornamentals. But your food crops, you're pretty much growing brassicaceous crops in the winter and solanaceous crops in the summer. And you put them all together and you are inviting insect and disease problems. But you certainly are. when you mix are. them up in the landscape, you're actually using the biodiversity that those ornamentals represent. And I think that's a conversation that more people really need to be turning their attention to because we all know that monocultures are not the solution. And right. we are, as vegetable gardeners, creating monocultures. So let's get out of that mindset and start using the palette 
that that swath of land that surrounds our house already has. That is a really good philosophy. We're going to need to talk to, some more about that after the break. And when I, when we do that, I'd also like to talk to you about, do you have any um, ornamental edibles in, in the way of trees and shrubs? We'll be right back after this. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Bree Arthur, who is a garden communicator and leader in the world of foodscaping. And right before the break, Bree, I asked you about, do you have any ornamental fruit trees in your yard? Well, yeah, and, you know, this is the great thing, um, because I think when you have a plant that supplies both beauty and utility, it's a gateway into foodscaping. And blueberries are by far the plant that I use as that introduction to growing something that, you know, brings you beauty all four months or all four seasons of the year and that you can eat from it. And I love doing blueberry hedges. I like to create rooms in landscapes that are hedged entirely by blueberries, especially I like to surround fire pits so that you feel, you know, kind of enclosed and private, but you have a reason other than a campfire to go out to the space to be able to harvest from. Um, you know, That's a good idea. If I were 20 years younger, I would have a fire pit next to some of my blueberries because blueberries were among the first plants that we put in, and they're on the east side of the house, so in the morning, um, in the spring, you see the light shining through their dangly flowers, and in the autumn, and they catch the the setting rays of the sun, and the red color just puts them on fire. And you can oh, go out there and, and the eat from them. flowers, bees, yeah. and you know, I mean, it's just a place where people feel wonder and awe. Blueberries are such a powerful motivator. 
not only are they beautiful and edible, but they also happen to be a Southeast native, which checks another important box that, you know, people in the last 10 years have definitely defined a need to have a, a sense of place through plants, and native plants do offer that. You know, I, I think that blueberries are just a very powerful catalyst to get people in. Yeah, and I'm sure that other in other parts of the country there are other things that will do that substitution. I know that the blueberries that I knew up north were much shorter, um, and, of course, they were deciduous, and I don't remember that their leaves ever turned red like our southern rabbit eyes and, and crosses do. But well, I know I that there are now there's some new varieties that have that redder color for even people up in zone four. Ah, up to zone four. That that takes most of the country. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you have anything there's else no besides the besides the blueberries? A, kind of a, another southern quintessential is a fig, and so I have a couple of fig trees. My mother loved figs, so I planted some, and I also have some other things like service berry. Now, I don't get service berries to eat very often because um, the birds come in and, and get them, but they're part of the natural world. So if people are I thinking love about... service berry or a persimmon. You know, I think persimmons might be the next blueberry in that they've got great structural integrity. Um, they're, they're just a beautiful plant in general. There are weeping forms and variegated forms and... You know, they just look like uh, little mini pumpkins right around Halloween when it's getting ready to be time to harvest. And, again, it's another native plant, or you can do hybrids from, you know, the, the Asian native and the American native, which are really great fruits because you don't have to make them edible. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, you eat the native fruit too early and you won't have saliva for about 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that frost works wonders on it, doesn't it? Um, so when people are planning their foodscape, they can just put in, you know, some of these trees are really beautiful and architectural, like like the service berry and like the persimmon. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to grow yeah. a flowering cherry in the front yard, you might as well grow a flowering cherry that you can eat. Or a, pe- or a peach or something like that, because they have beautiful, beautiful blooms. I completely agree, and it's, it's amazing to me that we've transitioned really in the last 40 or 50 years. Like When you look at how landscapes have developed, it hasn't been long since people were growing supplemental amounts of produce. And, you know, I guess as people have specialized in their careers and more food has become generically available, and thus comes in the food miles crisis, where the average product at the grocery store now travels 1,500 miles. That's when just outrageous. Up, well, it really is. And when you start thinking about every product that's in your grocery cart every single week, and you really start calculating how many miles all of that adds up to, it's disturbing, and you can see very quickly why our current ag model and our current distribution of food is not going to be functioning by 2050. And in the scheme of things, that's not that long from now. You know, as we have a, a, an enormous global population, we have to come up with solutions to more hyper-localize 
larger percentages of what we're consuming. And the suburban landscape is just an opportunity waiting to happen. We've got sun, we've got soil, and in most cases we've got irrigation already in place. So for me, I, I think the suburbs are going to be, you know, this great opportunity, particularly with millennials starting to become more economically empowered. I've recently read an article saying that by 2018, the millennial generation will have surpassed the baby boomers as the number one factor in the global economy. So that's a year and a half from now. Wow. So the time is upon us, and the driving forces behind what the younger age group sees as important are, are quite different and quite in contrast to what we have always been marketing to. And they see a need for local, organic, sustainable produce. Their aesthetic is very different. I suspect that the suburban landscape is not going to look like the manicured golf course that we currently see in 10 years. I, I think that it's going to be a really rapid change as we get these younger people buying houses. I certainly hope so, because I grew up in the day where, you know, it was really common to have a farm next door or, you know, or right at the end of your street or something like that. And it was just at that turning point where uh, power mowers came in. I remember that we had an old push mower, and I remember what a neat thing it was for my brother who had the lawn mowing duties to get a power mower so he could do it. But that kind of thing encouraged um, that and having the houses that were built for, you know, the folks right after World War II where the homes looked very much alike. They were on equal plots of land, um, and everybody wanted to look like part of the neighborhood. And that's driven us now to spend a whole lot of money on lawns and to pollute a lot more for lawns. And as you said, you know, we're not growing food. And I, I'm glad that that's turning, and you're in the forefront of that movement. How many talks have you given in the last year? Can you count that high? <laughs> well, I think I actually scheduled um, 125 lectures or presentations uh, for 2016. Oh last my. year is when I really started out on the, the lecture trail. And so I think in the last two years, I've been pretty, you know, nearing, nearing the 300 mark, uh, which is, you know, I feel so grateful and just I'm, every time I'm just so filled with joy that, that people want to hear this message and that they, they, they want to absorb some of this knowledge that through my education and career and my own, own experimentation have been able to kind of come up with some really logical ways to apply this so that you're not compromising everything else in your life. I mean, I understand that people are busy and especially people with young families are being driven in a million different ways. And if I can give them some tips to make managing their landscape fun and fruitful and still aesthetic and make it so that their neighbors don't feel anger towards them, then I will have accomplished my career goal entirely. And I, I just feel so grateful that I'm in a place where I, I actually get to do this and, and still earn a living. 
<laughs> just a horticulture has so much to offer this world, and we've really only only gotten to the very tip of it. You know, fundamentally, I don't even know that human life could exist. We, I know human life can't exist without plants. And we have such a privilege to be representing that in the horticulture profession. So I, I just, I, for the future, this industry has so much more to offer than clipped hedges and mow and blow services. And I'm looking forward to seeing it evolve into being more of a, a real lifestyle rather than what we're currently, you know, kind of passing on as a service and product. And one of the things about a foodscape is that you can you still don't have to do all of it yourself. You can if you're growing some of your own food tucked in among other things, you can manage that and still as long as you have a good landscaper who knows the difference between a tomato and a holly bush. Um, and most of them are getting that way now. Uh, they're coming out of schools with degrees in sustainable horticulture and and plant growing. And now I think that we're beginning this new generation of landscapers that can do it for you if you're too busy with the kids or whatever, you know, taking them to, to soccer and baseball and things like that. Um, and, and we can do it both ways. And I think that's just an exciting way to do it. Now, we've got about two minutes till the next break, but when we, you had mentioned Roz Creasy's books, and Rosalind Creasy was, good golly, I used to use her books when I was teaching, because her, her pictures, and you look at the, the vegetables that she has, and you, they're, they're not just vegetables, they're jewels in the landscape. And so I wanted to mention Roz Creasy again, and then I also wanted to ask you, when are you going to write a book? I am currently writing it, and it will be available uh, for sale March of 2017. Thank you, St. Lynn's Press, for seeing this through and encouraging me. And um, this winter, as I give presentations around the country, I'll actually be doing some pre-sales, but... March 2017 is when it will be available at bookstores. That is amazing. And you mentioned giving talks this winter. Um, where can people find that information? Uh, BreeGrows.com. I promise okay. I will do a better job of keeping my calendar updated. <laughs> I don't know how you do what you do, uh, but we have to take another little break uh, right quick. And when we come back, we will talk more about edibles in your yard and edible foodscaping. We'll be right back after this. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Bree Arthur, who is on top of everything else. She's going to have a brand new book come out. And you mentioned that you're going to be talking this winter. Do you have a list of those places on your website? I will today. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I will actually be working on getting my whole calendar up for the rest of the summer and then the start of 2017. Uh, so, okay. yeah, I'm kind of all over the place. Okay. For the average person listening to us that lives in a suburb and, you know, they maybe have a new house and, and 15 assorted builders' shrubs in the yard and a homeowner's association that doesn't want to let you grow vegetables in the front, how do people how, – how did you get started? Well, I'll tell you, some of the easiest – things I, I always tell people get started with something that's small and tangible and so lettuce is one of those you know 99 cent investments that will provide you with you know fresh greens for months and months at a time but I tell people get started with the edge first of all don't start tearing out sod that's the first way to make your HOA angry with you Start using that eight inches that I guarantee you don't have any plants on right now and you basically are fighting your edge. I love my favorite winter edging plants. You know, I love to thumb a little clove of garlic in. And I've recently Mm -hmm. just harvested about 350 bulbs of garlic. I miscalculated. I thought, well, we we use a clove of garlic every day. So I planted 350, not thinking that every one of those is going to produce a bulb with 10 to 12 cloves. But, you know, they don't take up any space. Uh, they actually deter a lot of different in- animals. You know, a lot of people say, what do you do about critters? And I think growing these allium-related plants are a great way to deter deer and bunnies and even the in-ground plants like voles or in-ground pests. And so garlic edging is a really great way to grow 100% of the garlic that you would use for a year. Um, of course, onions fit right into that category. And if you've never grown them, they're absolutely gorgeous. There is nothing unattractive about a, a garlic or an onion. Um, I also love in the summer when those crops come out, I just thumb in a peanut. And again, Peanuts are going to grow about 12 inches wide and maybe 12 to 14 inches tall. They've got beautiful yellow flowers. Uh, Nothing seems to eat the peanut foliage. So, again, I think that it can be used to deter 
those animals that come in and kind of eat everything. And at the end of the season, you just rip the peanut plants out of the ground, and there you have peanuts on every root. And it's a great way to engage, especially boys and men. Like, I've never seen my husband get so excited about a plant as when we were pulling peanuts out of the ground last year, and he <laughs> was just returned to his 8-year-old self and just, you know, would take roasted peanuts to work and got everybody at, at Duke Energy excited about growing peanuts in their landscape. So, you know, I think there are some really low-maintenance, low-cost plants that you can just literally thumb into that edge of your garden and suddenly you transform it from a landscape to a foodscape. It's, you know, foodscaping really is just about empowering you on your terms, and you can grow some substantial amounts of food just along the edge without changing anything else. So I, I think that that's some, some of my best advice that I can give people and I'll tell you, your your own homegrown garlic will automatically taste better than what you buy. <laughs> well, the stuff that you buy, most of it comes from so far away. It's already starting to dehydrate by the time it gets to the store. And then it'll sit in the store for months. And, uh, you know, it, so of course it's going to taste better. And you can get you know, different varieties, funny. too. Oh, yeah, I grew 25 different varieties this summer or this winter. And, you know, I, I do, because uh, I'm a collector, I like to keep things cultivar-specific. But it was when I was in Denmark for the International Plant Propagator Society that I really became aware of the the trouble or, frankly, the the unethical approach to growing garlic that we have globally. And most of it's coming from China. And yes. China has a very different uh, regulatory system for what is regarded as organic. And unfortunately, even places like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's are buying food labeled as organic grown in China, and they don't meet the ethical standards of the United States, let alone, you know, the European Union. And the Danish are, are fundamentally very nat- nationalistic about where their food comes from and are very intuitively drawn to organics. I would like to see the American society evolve in that way. Um, And it was the Danish that brought up, well, yeah, all this garlic that you see at our grocery stores is coming from China, and we don't support that. And I started doing research and realized that more than 90% of the garlic in American grocery stores is also coming from all the way across the world. When How it much? could be grown in every landscape, 90%. 90% is grown, wow. In China. That's amazing. And I always try to look for California garlic, but it's hard to find California garlic that's organically grown because, I guess because they've been using, you know, growing the same crop in the same valleys for ages and ages and ages. Now, we should mention, talking about organics and food, people need to be very, very careful uh, about use of chemicals in your lawn. Because, as you said, you're planting right at the edge between the shrubs and the lawn, and it's fairly common if you have, you know, and I'm, you know, I love horticulture industry, but there are some applicators out there in the turf field that just will spray the heck out of everything. And I hope that by putting food in the landscape, people become 
more sensitive and more aware of the need for organic management of all of their space. You know, it kills me that people will, you know, shove their vegetables in the back corner of their backyard and say that I'm growing organic and then have continuous sprays in the land that their family and their pets interact in every day. And as far as the lawn management, there are plenty of organic measures that can be employed. And all you need to do is look at the statistics of the skin cancer rates in cats and dogs to say Mm -hmm. we do not need to be spraying these synthetic chemistries and then paying thousands of dollars to have our pets treated for cancer that is exclusively coming because of the maintenance practices that we are paying for. One of the dogs that we adopted developed lymphosarcoma when he was just barely about eight years old. We don't know, of course, how old he was. The vet thought he was two when he came to us. Um, And the vet told us that that's usually a direct result of playing on lawns that have been treated with 2,4-D. And that just broke our heart because he was a really great dog. And, and it's so avoidable. It is. And, and avoiding buying organic that's grown in China is avo- avoidable, too. We lost our last two dogs to the poison Chinese pet food. So as you can imagine, um, I, I, don't, I don't try to buy anything from there if I can help it. And I'd rather do without than, than to purchase something that is not necessarily organically grown. And I'm not an organic nut case. In in this case, though, you really do have to, you know, come up with some principles and live by them and, you know, empower yourself to, 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 to play a role in your consumption. I mean, we all need to take some responsibility for our health and wellness through our consumption. And I would say overwhelmingly this is what bothers me most about the American society right now is that we depend on a pharmaceutical industry before we start to really reflect on why are we sick? What did I eat that may be playing a role in this? And how can I contribute to my health before we take it and blame a doctor? Because at the end of the day, our illnesses are coming from exposure to something that we're putting ourselves in front of. And, you know, it it bothers me a lot that I see particularly an aging demographic that hasn't taken responsibility for their health and wellness by reflecting on what they're consuming. And I hope that that's a trend that's going to change as a new generation develops. And well, it's all people at need the to do my message. All people need to do, Bree, is look at you and look at Shauna Coronado and some of the other hortic- people in horticulture who are slim Energetic, I mean energetic too. I, I can't even imagine keeping up with the schedule that you have. And, and Shauna too, you're always out traveling, um, climbing mountains, <laughs> just, just an amazing stuff. And I gotta say that that's probably due to what you're eating. And I it really think. It all starts with your consumption. It really does. And hydration. You know, <laughs> drink more water and put the colas down. You know, it, it's amazing to me that, that the, the, the cola industry can be such a leading economic factor in this world when it only brings type 2 diabetes and cavities to your, to your body. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I can't even remember the last time I had a soda. 
um, it's mostly water or coffee or juice, and not even so much juice because I'm getting older and you know it doesn't. Huh, it just packs on calories if you have too much. Bree, um, we have to get back to talking about where can people find your book next year, and do you have a title yet for it? Well, I don't think I'm allowed to reveal the title yet, but it's definitely directly related to what we've been having a conversation about. Um, I, uh, I'm under the impression that it will be available at uh, most bookstores and certainly uh, botanical gardens to be available online. I will certainly have the uh, links available through my website, Bree Grows. And then, of course, at all of the places that I have the pleasure of presenting Next year, I will actually have a take-home for people to be able to buy from, from the conferences that I'm at. So I think that distribution will be relatively wide, and I'm really hoping that this is a book that doesn't only cater to people that are already involved in gardening, but also in, you know, a, a gets people's attention that are foodies and homesteaders and you know, people that are just really wanting to change the dynamic of the neighborhood they live in. You know, and I think that if every neighborhood could have some kind of food celebration from one crop that they all collectively grow, it would really help increase that that sense of community, that sense of place that I think right now everybody has an intuitive need for and isn't totally being fulfilled. So I I really think that plants and gardening and horticulture in general is a, a direct route to giving people a satisfaction in their day-to-day, and I, I, I hope that my book can help fulfill some of that. That is great. And, of course, when you tell me what the title is, um, I will post it on our website. And, Bree, we have to get you back because one of the things I wanted to talk about was your aquaponics and hydroponics, and we didn't even have a chance to do that. But this is – I'm sorry we're about out of time. I hope everybody will join us for America's Homegrown Veggie Show next week. And, I, and remember, you can always catch something – catch it in the archives – if you've missed something. Thank you so much for being with me, with us, Bree. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to get to have a conversation with you. Okay. And that's it for today, but we'll see you next week. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.